0: Hi. Sarah. Oh, hi. Sarah. 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 Nice to meet you. Sarah. All right, you ready to do some mean tweets? I'm ready. Sarah Spain sounds like a nagging wife on TV today. Not even married yet.
1: <laughs> Julie DeCaro is a run-of-the-mill, mediocre beat writer. Not atrocious. Not good. Just sorta there.
0: I'm actually not a beat writer at all, but okay.
1: <laughs> Sarah Spain is just a scrub muffin. I don't even know what a scrub is. I don't either. I love muffins. One of the players should beat you to death with their hockey stick like the whore you are. I'm just reading this. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Okay, uh, this is why we don't hire any females unless we need, uh, unless we need our sucked or our food cooked. Sarah Spain is a self-important, know-it-all Okay, uh. Just read the tweets, man. There's some mean tweets. Um, this dumb A lot of c-word. There's a lot of c-words. Yeah. Yeah. I hope your dog gets hit by a car. You.
0: Hopefully, this skank Julie
1: Decaro is Billy Bill Cosby's next victim.
0: That would be classic. I don't know what to say to that.
1: I don't. Mm. Mm. I don't think I can even say that. Um I hope your boyfriend beats you. I'm sorry.
0: Why bring up your own rape in this story? Is it your way of firing back at critics who said
1: you can't get any? That's something, huh? I'm sorry.
0: Uh, okay. So I, I, ha- I have to read
1: all of them, right? Because I mean, I don't
0: Read them, I guess.
1: Uh, I hope you get raped again. Oh. trouble looking at you when I'm saying these Mm -hmm. things. Uh, uh, Sarah Spain is a . I would hate Okay. Uh. You need to be hit in the head with a hockey puck and killed.
0: That's it.
1: Sorry that these were directed toward you. I am sorry on behalf of other people everywhere that you've had to deal with this. I feel like I need to apologize to my mother, but to be that's a whole nother story. Wow, <laughs> you know, and, and I'll do sort of the formal introduction of Sarah in a second, but I wanna get your, what your reaction was then and even and now, is it the same or is it different?
0: Um, what was interesting to me was actually how little I felt other than empathy for the men and how much they struggled because I was so used to it by that and it kind of made me sad actually that I've gotten so used to it that um, it wasn't until they were saying them and having to say the words to my face that I kind of remembered the words and what they meant. I had really gotten used to not caring and not digesting it. Um, And for the sake of that, when they were looking for some other actual messages we got, I went back and found one I had reported when I first started working at ESPN 1000. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, if I got this now, it would not even cross my mind to do anything. I'm so used to it by now. And at the time, I think I was so shocked by it that I was like, I need to report this to security. And now I'm like, ugh, whatever. And that's not good. No. It's not very good. Um, one of the things that we found really interesting about that when we went around to talk about it, because it won a bunch of awards, so we did a lot of media and got asked a lot of questions, was how it was unfortunate but true that it was in part really powerful because we were stoic and the men were upset. And that, unfortunately, some people just aren't interested in listening to women or maybe are sick of hearing women complain about very real things. So by virtue of it being the men who were emotionally affected, it felt different for them to watch. And that's why it was super effective, but it's sort of an unfortunate truth that people often um, don't listen to women.
1: Uh, very true. That's amazing. Well, let's first uh, talk a little bit about Sarah. She is more than what we're kind of watching now. <laughs> um, we, in that's all right. I've ever done. That's thanks for having me. That's it, yes. Uh, we talk a lot at Cronkite about glass ceilings because there's a lot of amazing women that go to the school, a lot of amazing minorities, and we talk about some of the, the things that are, we are challenged by. For me, you crash through that glass ceiling because sports talk radio traditionally is a male dominated field mostly by men who before they go to dinner, you know, be go get a woolly mammoth for dinner and <laughs> serve it to their family. I mean, it's that. So I think what you've done is incredible. So I'm sure most of you have heard, but if you haven't, uh, Sarah Spain does a fantastic radio show on ESPN called Spain and Fitz. I like you get first billing, by the way. Yeah, that's good. It's in uh, my contract. It, it's awesome. A lot of different. You'll see her on a lot of different platforms on ESPN, whether it's SportsCenter, different shows that they do, you see her on the radio. She has an awesome podcast. If you haven't uh, listened to it, tackles some of the issues. That's what she said. And just an amazing career in such this short time. So Sarah, first of all, welcome. Thank, Thank you for coming here. Happy to be here. So I'll, Sarah's been speaking at a lot of classes and I'll, so I'll give a little bit of the Reader's Digest version of your career, but (laughs) I think it's really important to know the path she took because it really shaped the direction she went in. So went to Cornell, was a college athlete, a heptathlete, was thinking of going into comedy afterward and so kind of dabbled in that, went out to Los Angeles, Um, And then kind of explain where that turned, what was the place it turned?
0: So yeah, I took a bunch of acting classes, I um, was trying to be an actress and dreamed of going to Saturday Night Live, Uh, took a hosting boot camp that was, I I was really enjoying the idea of of maybe being a host on like E! or something like that, and uh, hosted a fake Chicago Bears show just to practice the ins and outs. And the teacher was like, oh, that's great. You want to do sports? And they're like, oh, I don't want to do sports. There's no women in sports, and even the few that I've seen don't get to be funny. And I really want to be entertaining. I want to embrace the comedic side. Um, and she was like, well, you should think about it. You know, maybe you could be that person who does that. And so I took a class at UCLA Extension in TV sports reporting just to see if it would be something I had interest in. And the fact that it didn't even occur to me before then kind of tells you the state of women in sports at the time. I was a three-sport high school athlete, obsessed with Michael Jordan. Every present I wanted was a Michael Jordan book, a video. I had every VHS. I had everything possible. And I, you know, never occurred to me to work in it. I didn't see any women, so it just wasn't an option. And it wasn't like I felt like I couldn't. It just literally did not occur to me that you could do that as a job as a woman. And so when I took that class at UCLA and it felt so natural and it felt like my people and my wheelhouse because I had been doing sports my whole life, uh, something kind of clicked. And then once I switched to that, I had a lot to learn to not just be a fan and to cover sports I had never really cared about before, but it really did just go like this after that. And I brought my whole... Second City improv background and all the comedic stuff I wanted to do, and I really tried to bring that to my sports coverage to separate myself and to treat it the way that I was hoping to see other people treat it.
1: And that's what's so interesting to me And the message, sort of recurring theme I've heard today, is you sort of shaped, your, your past sort of shaped the direction you went, and I think a big message you've had for students is to be who you are, not try to necessarily Emulate someone they're seeing, right? I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, it's sometimes there's like really great cliches and they're good for a reason, but you kind of hear them and don't think them through. And be yourself is one of those. It is like it's fascinating to me how many different kinds of people are all interested in this career and how so many of them try to fit themselves into the same exact mold. And when I was starting out, I really was sort of um, first steered towards t- being more polished and i realized pretty quickly on that i didn't like watching people on tv that were super stiff and polished so why would i want to be one of them and that kenny main was my favorite and he was dry and deadpan and sarcastic and satirical and smart and if i was those things naturally why wouldn't i be that way why would i instead i remember i was doing auditions for other hosting gigs mm-hmm. And I realized, why am I trying to do a show where I would literally be like, you'll never guess what Britney Spears wore to the award show coming up. (laughs) Like, why would I ever, I never talk like that. (gasps) No one ever talks like that. But some people are really good at talking like that for TV. I don't want to ever be that person. And so when I got into sports and I was like, this is what I want to watch. I'm going to be the person that I would want to watch. And I mean, it's daunting to do. And if that's not who you are, then... Be a great investigative reporter, be a great stats person. For me, my sense of humor has always led the way. I'm a total trash talker. I've been, I'm confident, and I am competitive at everything. I do not like to lose at darts in a bar, um, so that just has always led the way. And some people think it's um, like an act, like trying to hang with the guys, and they pretty soon realize after it doesn't go away, (laughs) that it's just who I am, and, and it's been okay to just be that.
1: So we're, it's amazing to me, but I still see it. We're in this weird world, this weird space where People still think, you know, the, she and female are like pejoratives, like, you know, you throw like a girl, or mm-hmm. I if you remember that Chris Pronger, uh, I think it was in the Tribune. Yeah, Chicago, I think Sun Times, yeah, they put him in a skirt. Right, put him in a skirt, and, 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 be, and that was a bad thing, because he was dressed like a female. So I, I've always been so impressed that you will address these things, whether it's on the radio, and I wondered how you got so brave. Because that's, that's really hard for Yeah.
0: Us. Well, so when I worked at Fox Sports, right, it was my first job in sports. I was one of, I think, three women and about 45 guys on an everyday basis. We were watching and logging live games, picking the highlights, writing what the anchor person would say about the highlights for the night. And I felt in order to make it in that environment, I sort of had to be one of the guys, and that felt like the right choice because I liked sports, so I must have been more like a guy than a girl because that's what I'd been taught my whole life. So being one of the guys and and kind of letting it ro- roll off if they made fun of the WNBA or they, you know, and it didn't feel comfortable, it didn't feel good, but it felt like this is how I have to be to not stick out. No. And it wasn't until later that I realized that I had played the game long enough that I was ready to change it, that I had dealt with it long enough that I was ready to pivot into being somebody who says not to do that and not to say that and that we belong and that you know I went to a meeting, one of my first meetings for ESPNW which is a website geared towards female athletes and sports fans and it was a full table of women, it was like the awesome meeting I spoke at earlier which was so great and it was all these women that were like all American field hockey players at Duke and division one college basketball players and they just were women who loved sports and there's plenty of us but it just always felt like We were told growing up that that didn't exist, so we had to say we were one of the guys and play by their rules and insult girls to to keep up. Um, And one thing that was really powerful to me was realizing that, and I hate using words like this because it turns a lot of people off and they stop listening, but we live in a patriarchy. Mm -hmm. We live in a place where the rules have been made by men, and until you wake up and realize that you don't have to play by them, you digest them and take them in as if they're true. And my husband literally was more of a feminist than I was when I met him because I had already bought into so many BS ideas about what it meant to be a woman and what I could do and what I was allowed to do. And I don't know how he got so woke. He's some random dude from Wisconsin, but thank God. Um, And he would stand up more for me than I would early on. And then I just, something clicked and I was like, wait a minute, why is it this way? I started asking questions, why is it this way? Why is this okay? And when I was writing for ESPN Double, I wrote a story because OCU Menyora, and I can't even remember who the other player were, was, were having like a Twitter battle, and he was using women's insults, they both were, to get back at each other. And one of them was OC wishing the guy a happy Mother's Day. So clever. <laughs> and I wrote a story, and I think it might still be up, it's called The Inequality of Insults. And I said, How come our leagues literally fine you for homophobic slurs, for racial slurs, and women are just fair game? We don't care if you use women as the biggest insult possible. Women are synonyms for weak and less than, and inferior and a joke. And that's just not true. And so that kind of writing those pieces and being given a space by W was a total game changer. And I can't tell you how many women work for W that say being in a space of empowered women where they tell you to speak up for the things that don't seem right um, makes you see more things that don't seem right and then speak up for those. And that's where the bravery comes from. And then also, like, growing up, I was six feet tall when I was 12. I could beat the boys in everything, and I would happily do so, and I wouldn't feel bad for them when I would beat them. And that mentality of never feeling like I was less than or never feeling like I couldn't keep up kept me from ever accepting when people would rip on women or say that we weren't good enough.
1: You know, there was just I saw this on the internet or on Twitter yesterday, I think. Did you guys see this thing about this girl who wrote a letter to Chuck E. Cheese? Because they're right, there's a yep. baseball game and if you fail at this baseball game, it basically says something like, Well, there's always softball. Uh, you know, again, a demeaning. And even the comments under people were reposting it and under people the comments underneath were like, Why are you guys so uptight about mm-hmm. this? It's so the mentality is still there. It's great. Well and
0: Actually, Keith Oberman, who had a great show that I wish was still around because it was so smart, did a piece, and it no longer lives on the internet, and I actually should ask ESPN to find it for me because I shared it a ton after he did it. It was essentially about microaggressions, another word that people hate hearing and you'll probably stop listening. Um, How the idea of the very small things every day pile up to create an idea of people in ways that if you don't understand or believe in inequality, you don't even recognize. If you allow people to speak about a certain race or religion or gender in tiny little insulting ways over and over and over again, and each of those times, it's not a big deal or just a joke, the cumulative effect is that we view people who are that race or religion or gender as, a, as an accumulation of those ideas. And I, a co-host and teammate at ESPN, Ryan Marcillo, he always rolls his eyes at me. And he says, I feel like I roll my eyes at you too many times when you think something is offensive, but I feel like you think too many things are offensive. Let's talk about (laughs) it. So we did a segment on his show trying to come to terms on it, and I basically just said, you're a straight white dude who thinks people overreact, but you don't understand that all these little things add up, and it's why we can't be taken seriously, why we don't get jobs, why we get sexually harassed, why we... um, can't break through these ceilings, it's because the accumulation of these things has made people view women as inferior, soft, less than, et cetera. And so you might think someone's overreacting, but every single time,
1: they all add up. They do. They completely do. And so, you know, we we were talking today a lot about jobs, too, and there's certainly many more opportunities for women, which is outstanding. But... uh, There is always a challenge, I think, of women in the the locker room and being taken seriously. And I wondered early in your career, because you were having a lot of success. I know we we talked when you were doing a lot of stuff with the Blackhawks. You were were breaking stories and having success, success, but the feedback wasn't always, I mean, right? right? I wasn't breaking stories in the traditional sense.
0: I was working for a startup website supposed to be the voice of the athlete, very fun, lighthearted. get to get-to-know-the-players-personalities. And so when I was going in there, I wasn't acting like a standard beat reporter, asking them, how's the injury, when do you expect to be back, you know, you got moved to the third line, what do you think about it? I was asking them fun stuff. And i had just gotten there, I'd been there for less than a month, I don't know if even all the players knew my name by then, and... I found out via a friend who worked in the industry who did some digging for me that one of the older male reporters told the PR people there I must have been sleeping with the players because they were giving me better interviews. Like I said, I don't think most of them even knew my name, not to mention that. The assumption was simply this young girl who I've never heard of or seen before comes in and the guys are giving her fun, lighthearted, personality-driven stuff, she must be sleeping with them and not that she's 27 and much closer in age and asking them different questions and good at her job. Right. Um, and they ended up taking me out of the locker room, and they claimed it was because the Blackhawks TV was doing the same kind of fun stuff as us. And then I'd have to drive an hour and 45 minutes whenever any of them were nearby, not nearby, far away, at a place doing signing, ask them afterwards, after you're signing, will you do a quick interview with me? A couple players had me to their house to let me do an interview because they were like, this is, doesn't make any sense. You didn't do anything. Um, and that was that a while later once I got to know them well enough, and they realized that it was lame that I wasn't coming there anymore. Um, got to the Cubs that next season, so that was winter. Now it's spring. I'm super shook, so I'm, like, kind of not even getting involved. I'm just sticking my mic in and making sure I don't offend people early on. And a woman I knew was working in the production side, and she said she was in a meeting where they were talking about how my boobs were distracting and what were they <laughs> going to do about it. And she's like, she can't hang them up outside the locker room and then grab them (laughs) on her way out. Like, it's just this assumption, young, female, I'm six feet tall, got a nice rack of lamb, born with it, sorry. (laughs) And you're just, the assumption is always you don't know your stuff until you prove otherwise. And men do not get that. They get the benefit of the doubt that they're there for the right reasons, that they love sports, that they worked hard, that they know their stuff. And I just had to go through so much crap before I got to ESPN and doors were open for me and I started to go on shows and the very same people who treated me like garbage all of a sudden were like, oh, I saw this on Outside the Lines. That was great. And I was like, well, I've always been great. Yeah. You just made me go through a bunch of trash before you got it because suddenly I work for somewhere where you're seeing my talent instead of starting out, right. which is where you always have to start. So that sucked. It really did. And I had read a lot of books about it and I was naive enough to think I would not fall prey to it because... I had never been raised as someone who thought that women couldn't do the same and right. wouldn't do the same. And it was a real slap in the face to be like, oh, this stuff is all real. It really happens.
1: Because you grew up in an environment where there were My mom was a lawyer right? Right. with
0: my dad. They were partners in a law firm that they ran. And she's a super badass. And I was like, why would I ever think I couldn't do anything? Right. I'm awesome. <laughs> That's right. And, <laughs> and then I was like, maybe not. And that was awful, too, because yeah. that really for a number of years made me totally doubt myself and totally question myself, and it wasn't about whether I was good at my job. It was about preconceived ideas about what women are about and what we can do, and yeah.
1: So, and I, and I mentioned the locker room and the clubhouse, and this is a discussion we're having the last few days here at Cronkite, because people in our sports bureau are covering spring training, and there's a lot of um, young women going into clubhouses the first time, and I felt like I had to send them an email about attire. Mm-hmm. and I. F- Felt really bad about that because I—it's like you should be able to wear what you want, but you'll be judged. So, how have you sort of reconciled that? Like, how do you? Well, I'll fully admit that I was in LA
0: and I was losing jobs to young women in like clubbing dresses. So I was like, okay, I'm not doing this right. I have to be much sexier to get to work in this industry. So then I was like, okay. So I did this uh, fantasy football show, huge. Two million dollar studio really high-level executives who had multiple shows on ESPN. This was a side internet project I got to write the content and host my first It was my first on-camera gig But all my outfits had to be football jerseys that were like laced up the front and big they literally told me more cleavage more padding Um, and so I was like I guess this is what you do to get your start and um, when I got to Chicago I certainly was not dressed inappropriately, but I definitely didn't camouflage the way I try to do now when I'm on camera. I mostly try to keep the breasts as subtle as possible, because otherwise it's literally the only thing anyone mentions. Um, But I didn't do that then, partly because I'm 25, Mm -hmm. I'm deeply insecure about whether I look the part. Because I looked around and all the women that were given opportunities were essentially supermodels who liked sports and were good at their jobs. But i was like, I'm never going to look like that. Um, So I certainly dressed a little tighter than I would ever do now. And it sucks because you want to tell all the women, don't do that. Mm -hmm. But then you're like, that show where I had awful lace-up cleavage is what got me my first call from this really big company. And I know so many women who have that experience, so until the gatekeepers until the gatekeepers stop hiring women who arouse them mm-hmm. and giving them opportunities, it's a catch-22. Um, and you don't have to do that to find success, and you shouldn't do that, and you certainly shouldn't. If you're someone like me who doesn't feel comfortable, there are plenty of women who are comfortable like that. I've always wanted to be a comedian. I don't mm-hmm. like being objectified. It makes me uncomfortable. but. If that's what you see everywhere, that's what you're going to do. I think it's much better now. I think there are women of shapes and sizes and whatever that are doing great work. Um, what I saw when I was just starting on especially, like, websites or smaller jobs that I thought would be what I would be auditioning for was very across the board, tons of makeup, tight dresses, et cetera. Um, and so your email is necessary to those women. Right. The stereotype and the, and the, and the you know... It's, it's unfortunate that it's still the case, but you have to acknowledge it because you will be viewed and judged and discarded and not, not given a chance if they think that the way you dress is telling them who you are.
1: It kind of, I don't know, it made me start thinking too just about, and you, you mentioned you've seen it sort of improving, there's more shapes and sizes. What do you think has finally turned with that where we're we're seeing, you know, MBA analysts now are a female and maybe not looking traditionally like supermodels. What has changed? Is it the people making the decisions realizing or? I think that's
0: some of it. I think society in general is changing. Um, But I do think, even when I started, and we were at ESPNW, we were pushing from within Mm -hmm. to have fewer women just facilitating conversations between men. There were women anchors and and sideline reporters, and then women who were in a host position who would ask men for their opinions, but not be able to offer their own. And even just in the nine years or so since I've been with ESPN, I've really noticed a change in the number of women who are opinionists and analysts. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also, we always say at ESPNW, if you can see it, you can be it. This generation, I guess my generation, Mm -hmm. saw women before us, Mm -hmm. and now people are seeing us, and from a younger, earlier age, they're wanting to do the job, they're believing that all the different uh, positions are open to them, and then there's more talent, Um, and there's more people who are trying for it. So I think it's changing. I think there's still a lot of the same issues you have to grind through on your way up, but um, once you... Once you've asserted yourself and you've proved that you know your stuff, most opportunities are, are open to you. Sports radio is still one of the worst. Mm-hmm. And then obviously color and play-by-play are a little bit slower going. But I mean, there's a lot of other ones that used to be totally boys club and there's really women making their
1: name. Yeah, no. I think you're right. When we turn on TV now, we're, we're seeing different people and different people talking. It's been, it's been amazing. Um, I know you get this question a lot, but I, there's, I know a lot of sort of hungry eyes out here, sort of what advice, female or male, for, as far as getting into sports journalism, what would you say?
0: Well, I think I, a lot of people were already somewhere that I talked to today, so I don't <laughs> want to repeat myself, so I'll make this shorter. But the be yourself thing, and the example I have for that is this book I read, this crazy guy, Bobcat Goldthwait, and the book basically said, if you're moving to Hollywood and you're trying to make it, Don't try to be the thing that everybody already knows just be yourself even if that doesn't exist and this guy bobcat goldthwait who's kind of Pee-wee herman-esque but not really but that's (laughs) the best example i can give for people that are under a certain age um really quirky and weird and different and no one ever would have said you know what we're looking for is a guy just like this but he showed up and he was authentically weirdly himself and he made a space for himself and that's what i decided to do when i brought my comedic background into a sports world where i didn't see women getting to be funny there was no Katie Nolan's and Michelle Beatles and whatever else. Um, So being truly authentically yourself and and finding out how to make that work for you is my biggest advice. And then the second one is, you have to digest sports content 24-7. Listen to sports radio, listen to sports podcasts, read stories. Unfortunately, it will feel like sometimes it's at the expense of other things you're interested in, art and music and books and whatever, but the way to sound like you know what you're talking about and to really truly understand the conversations being had, how they're being had, the terminology being used, the rhythm and the tone and everything, that's not to say you're copying, it's to say you have to understand the industry really well. And it took me a couple years early on to, to really understand how much time I had to devote to watching sports and listening to sports and reading sports to really be able to get it. It's very different than being a fan. It's very different even than being a casual worker. If you really want to succeed, it is really getting ingrained in you every little detail, because people who know sports and listen and watch all the time can instantly hear it. If you use the wrong terminology, if you sound just a little off, and I used this example earlier when I started at ESPN 1000 doing updates, I would occasionally say the Cubs lost 4-0. There's nothing wrong with that. Zero is a number. Nobody says that a team lost 4-0. They say 4-0. We just don't say it. We don't really say 4-0, and it stood out to my program director, and I fixed it, but it was one of those things that had I been really digesting over and over and over, I probably wouldn't even subconsciously think to say that. It would just come out right. right. So that's really important.
1: We were, well, we were talking earlier and we were talking about some of the challenges that we both had in the business. One of the conclusions we both came to was some of the biggest challenges were criticism or issues with our male colleagues and not so much the athletes and people we were covering. So I'm looking, and there's a lot of young male journalists in here, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind sort of speaking to them about that and what you would hope from them. Well, I actually hope
0: and think and have seen that for the most part, younger men are much more woke. They have been growing up with women who are, she wants you to give her a little, (laughs) Uh, uh, They've been growing up with women competing. I mean, Title IX was a sea change Mm -hmm. in the way we grew up as girls playing and as boys being surrounded by girls playing sports, watching sports, caring about sports. And so I do think the younger generations are better. That's not all of them. And there has, unfortunately, I think it's, you know, two steps forward, one step backlash. Those two steps offend the people who don't care about equality or diversity. Um, what do they always say, uh, equality feels like oppression if you're used to being right. you know, in a position of, of uh, great whatever in power. So um, I think there are young men that are taking that step back, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and joining the ranks of those who, who think trashing women and equality is an issue. Um, but the older gentleman, you're right, I was warned about that when I joined the industry. I thought it was going to be the athletes. Sure, I had a couple athletes hit on me. I told them I wasn't interested. We went back to work. It was fine. The the male reporters, not all of them, there's some great ones, but they were the ones who consistently had an issue and felt intimidated or threatened and would would make up stories or would be crass or would, you know, spend half their radio show talking about how sports are set to the dial of men, which is an actual quote from a radio host in San Francisco. Um, And so I think the younger generations hopefully realize that there are women everywhere that are just as invested and also that... There might be a different path and i was talking about this in awesome my parents didn't like sports i did not grow up watching them the same way i was obsessed with michael jordan and the bulls i was an athlete i did, was all state and band in chorus i did three sports i was a nerd i was very involved so i watched bulls basketball all the time and that was pretty much it didn't watch a lot of baseball didn't watch a lot of football the football sports was not on in my house my parents do not care so by the time i found my genuine love for it, I had a lot of catching up to do. That doesn't make me worse at my job or less of a sports fan than you. That means I got there in a different way and I fan differently or I report differently, that's fine. But if the women around you aren't as invested in the same way, maybe it's because society didn't offer them an opportunity or their parents didn't think they'd be interested or their teachers didn't ask them if they wanted to go do this project or whatever it is. And so, Give them a helping hand instead of judging what they don't
1: know or what they haven't gotten to yet. That's a great point. Um, Who do you like to watch uh, in the sports realm of sportscasters, male or female? Who who do you like? This is
0: gonna get back to Mina Kimes because I've just been standing her all day. She's always the first one that comes to mind because she's so smart and so funny and so prepared and quick Mm -hmm. and just so authentically herself. Kenny Mayne has been a big idol since the beginning. Uh, Dan Levitard is a huge mentor of mine and has found this great space of absolutely knowing his stuff and being brilliant and totally not caring if anyone knows that he knows his stuff and throwing it away if there's a funny bit or an comfortable, silly conversation that can be had. He also really allowed me to come to a space where I can make a mistake and just own it and be okay and not think everyone's gonna tell me I don't deserve my job anymore. Right. Cause he makes mistakes and he'll announce midway through a show, if like the Brooklyn Nets come up, he'll be like, anyone know who coaches the Nets? Can anyone in the room name <laughs> the coach of the Nets? And he'll just admit it or he'll be like, let's see how many Nets we can name. And they'll be like, uh, is this guy still? And you'll be like, oh, they don't know everything. Yeah. Which we don't because it's really hard. There's so much to know all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, who else do I love? Um, gosh, there's so many. I, I mean, I, I was saying earlier, I've had so many women from ESPN on my podcast that blow my mind with how accomplished they are. Jessica Mendoza. Yeah. She like, graduated Stanford in three years while playing softball as an All-American and Olympic softball. She was a president of the Women's Sports Foundation like, in her 20s. She got her master's in a year, I think. She's just like, <laughs> not real life. Um, so she's amazing. There's so many. There's like too many. Um, It'd be easier if I told you the ones I don't like, but that is not going to happen. We could go there if you
1: want. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're not trying to get ratings. <laughs> okay. um, I had a question, and I just thought... Oh, yeah, so what are the issues like what are the biggest biggest issues you like to talk about now? Not necessarily like teams and the X's and O's, but when you're, when you guys are, and you guys are so good on the radio, your chemistry is great, but what topics do you like to hit now? Are they social issues? Are they?
0: Yeah, so um, like Spain and Fitz runs 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern. It's a lot of drive time on the West and in and, and Midwest and they really want us to play a lot of the hits, that's what okay. they call it, play the hits. So whatever the biggest story of the day is, and then we try to find an angle or a way to talk about it that isn't the same thing everyone else has been mm-hmm. saying or like, you know, hacky stuff. We're definitely not into hot takes, we definitely don't disagree with each other just to disagree. Right. Um, like I'll give you an example of how we'd approach it. So Zion Williamson gets hurt, it becomes this almost like butterfly effect of all the things that happen because of what turned out to be a minor knee strain, right? People are complaining about the NCAA system, NBA one and done, Nike shoes, uh, NCAA amateurism, Zion should quit and stop playing now. Mm-hmm. It's all these things. And we start thinking about the number of adult people projecting on Zion what they think he should do now because of the money that can be made later, correlating that to the number of players who are skipping bowl games or getting injured and deciding to stay right. out for the year and how we've made this incredible change into respecting and caring about the value of these college athletes in a way we never did before that is incredibly valuable, Mm -hmm. but at what point do we cross over to being so concerned with the money they can make later that we no longer value the space that they're in now? They don't get to enjoy collegiate sports. They don't get to leave a legacy. They don't get to remember going to the NCAA tournament or playing in that bowl game with their teammates and helping their team win whatever the bowl is because we're so ready to give them over to the money-making, which makes sense. But what if they're Greg Oden or Jay Williams who got in the motorcycle accident? What if they never get anything at the next level and that one chance they had to be with their team and win something mm-hmm. or to be one of the greatest college athletes or how this memory is gone it's not an easy question there's no hot take answer but it's a conversation that I find interesting because I feel the same way about like we've been talking about NBA player empowerment LeBron changed the game when he went to Miami and told people this is where I'm going and then started signing like one plus one deals so that at each turn you could tell the Cavs you don't sign who I want you don't run the team the way I want I'm gone right. I don't need a long-term contract I'm signing for a year so I can essentially be a GM and tell you who to get and what I want, or else I'm going to leave. This has created this new look in the NBA where players are asking out of contracts early, are deciding where they want to be. This is great. We want athletes to have the power. Screw the man. Except, how do you get a team to build if they can't even count on contracts that have already been signed? Not free agency. A guy is supposed to be there another two years, and he says, I don't want to be here anymore. How do you then blame that team when they have trouble building, especially a small market team? So, like, I'm not saying I don't want player empowerment. Again, it's not an easy answer. But I think we do need to understand that we're now saying, yeah, you get your money, Le'Veon Bell. And if you don't, you should definitely just sit out an entire season that you are contractually obligated to play, that your team and your teammates all depended on you to play in. It's his right. Right. Is that really what we want, though? He also lost fourteen and a half million dollars. That there's no way he's getting back on whatever big right. contract he signs next, no matter how big it is. There's no way he's recouping that. So was it a win for him? I don't know. See, I guess that's, he got to be in Miami a lot
1: and smoke a lot of weed. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, that—that's th- what's so interesting to me about what you've allowed talk radio to be, because it always seemed like it had to be black and white. This sucks. though. this is bad. This is good. But there's did you a just great. Catch or, yourself it, for saying sucks. What's that? Did you just catch yourself? I did and then I got over it, but <laughs> <laughs> there is that like, gray area that can turn into interesting conversation. Does that make sense? Totally. Well, because why is everything supposed to be hammer it yeah. even when, you, that's how even when you know? Was, yeah, right?
0: and honestly, it sounds so pretentious, but like nuance is too often right. lost. Yeah. It's just, we don't need, it's like, I hate these conversations when it's like, well, you know, if Michael Jordan played now X or Y, well okay don't ask me that question unless you can tell me which rules are we using does he get today's technology is he using today's workouts is he eating today's food is he otherwise it's a dumb hypothetical and it's a waste of our time but a lot of people love dumb hypothetical waste of our time conversation (laughs) i don't we're not going to have them on our show um because context matters and nuance matters and there's no point in having that conversation unless we have all that and so i'd rather. And you know, I think some people do want you know what's the Mount Rushmore of Pittsburgh sports athletes. I do not. know.
1: Well, and well, and one of, speaking of issues, and and frankly, this is something that has come up around Cronkite lately among leadership, and around the campus, there is concern about depression among students mm-hmm. and and suicide, and it's scary, sort of the numbers that we're seeing. You didn't, if I remember this correctly, an incredible interview with the hockey player, mm-hmm. NHL player. Who? What, do you remember
0: who that No, was? that was a football player who was later diagnosed with bipolar. Well, later diagnosed yeah, yeah, with
1: yeah. bipolar, yeah. yeah. So I mean, as, a, as a, a college athlete, do you see why, do you think it was, it's been kind of hidden or it just seemed to be hearing the story more or people were willing to talk about it? It's a
0: couple things, and if you guys are interested in this, my former colleague Kate Fagan wrote an incredible book called What Made Maddie Run. She wrote a story about a girl who was like a super high-achieving high schooler, went to UPenn to run track, beautiful, successful, talented, and she ran off the, I think it was the sixth floor of a parking garage, killed herself. Nobody knew that she was even unhappy, really, and... It was called Split Image, and it was very much about what she presented in social media and to the world versus what she was really feeling, and how she just felt she could never share that she was struggling because she'd always been super high-achieving, didn't want to disappoint people. So Kate took that and turned it into a book, and involved in the book writing was doing a lot of interviews on student campuses, understanding the nuances of uh, technology. And one of the most interesting things about it that I read to me was um, that psychosomatically, your body reacts incredibly differently to various forms of communication. Mm-hmm. If you see someone in person, your brain chemicals change. If you talk to them over the phone, your brain chemicals change. If you text them, nothing moves. Wow! It doesn't matter whether they say, I'm sorry, I'm here for you, I love you. That might make you feel better for a second. Nothing changed chemically in your brain. So we are sh- having so many conversations digitally that we used to have in person And our bodies do not respond the same way. We don't, like, think about when you have a disagreement with someone and you look in their face. You're reading what you're doing to them by what you're saying. Their mouth moves, their eyes change, their body movements. When we just sit on the Internet, even if it's a friendly conversation, we don't get any of that. Our brain doesn't take any of that in. There's so much contact missing. And so um, I think there has always been depression Mm -hmm. and people have been afraid to talk about it but it is increasing exponentially because of technology and social media. When I was in high school, I, was, I had a lot of friends, but I wasn't super popular. I did not get invited to parties. I didn't know they existed, so I wasn't there. <laughs> they went on without me. And if that were happening now, I would be seeing them all on my Instagram, and I would be seeing all the parties I didn't get invited to, and all the boys I liked with somebody that I wasn't as good as. And it would be so much more emo than being a teenager already is. And that's (laughs) real emo. Um, And I don't think we take that into account enough. And so that plus achievement culture Mm -hmm. where we say, I will be happy when I'm a success instead of saying happiness is a success. If I'm happy, I'm already a success. Everything else is gravy. We don't do that anymore. And that's part of what I was saying with athletes. It's great that they can make a ton of money. But now that they can make a ton of money, that is all we care about. right? We're skipping way ahead. We're doing that with everything. Oh, great, you're a good musician. Don't perform at your school recital. Go on YouTube. Get a contract. Be Justin Bieber. Um, our achievement culture is really empowering and also terribly damaging. And I'm really glad that a lot of athletes are coming forward with depression and mental health issues because it is so much stronger and braver to talk about it than it is not to, it is not a weakness. And Kate said something after writing that book that really struck me, which was, she had never before even thought about mental health, and now she thinks it's the greatest gift you can have. Wow. And the more I study it, and the more I realize that not everybody is naturally as happy and great, grateful. Actually, my podcast, I do a ton of stuff on neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. which is this actually fairly new discovery that the brain is not set One way forever, you can actually change your brain pathways to access things faster, almost like a shortcut. So, if you are not a grateful person and every day you force yourself to write down three things you're grateful for at the end of the day, your brain keeps going there and then it goes, You know what? This is taking a while. Let's go this way. Shortcut, shortcut. And then you get there faster and it makes it happen more often. They discovered like taxi drivers' brains, the part of their brain that does mapping Mm -hmm. and geography was like twice as big as the average person. And so your brain doesn't stay the same. You can choose to be happier or more grateful or any number of things, um, but you have to first acknowledge that not everyone's brain does the same things. And then you have to be willing to put in the work to, to make it get to the places you want it to go.
1: That's amazing. That's really interesting. Um, Neuroplasticity. Start reading <laughs> about it. it. You'll <laughs> never
0: stop. It's so fascinating. And I just had a neuroscientist on my podcast a couple weeks ago if you want to listen to it. You're such a nerd.
1: I am a huge nerd. <laughs> um, we are going to start taking questions. If you have questions, come on up to the mic. Somebody be brave and start. I was going to say the, the amazing one of the amazing things about that Kate Fagan story, and we had, I addressed it in one of my classes, was the follow-up of going to... The people who were on Facebook or on Instagram and writing what they were really thinking in those pictures so that everybody looked so happy Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, they were worried about their weight. They were worried about classes. It was such a great sort of um, kind of follow-up to that story.
0: Yeah. Most people are not giving you everything on their social media. They're giving you the highlights. Absolutely. Yes, sir.
1: (laughs) Hello. Uh, My name is Alex. I have found your work to be fascinating, but I imagine you you have to do a lot of things beyond a 40-hour week. And to me, knowing all of and hearing your responsibilities with the radio show and the TV hits, I kind of wonder, how do you balance doing your obligations and even, like, work obligations versus the work stories you want to do and the ones that you kind of balance, like, the need stuff versus the want stuff?
0: Right. That's why I love my podcast, because nobody assigns me anything. I can have anyone I want, so I'll have... Saturday Night Live cast members to neuroscientists, to athletes, and for me that gets to be like my space where it's just anyone I wanna have a conversation with. So that's a choice I get to make. Um, Around the Horn is very regimented, but we do have a call in the morning and they love me because I'll be like, what's the point of this topic? What are we, what are we getting at here? And we'll get to a point where there's an interesting angle and it's, or, or I'll introduce a topic that they hadn't planned on, but Around the Horn's pretty stiff. Radio, we have three hours, so we play the hits, but then if there's something I really want to get into, it's my show, so I can talk about it. Um, And as for longer form projects, um, right now I don't have a lot of time. So time is the thing that stands in my way. In the past, when I haven't been quite as busy, I've been able to pitch things to ESPNW, and they've been super open to me doing creative things. I did a whole series called No Spain, No Game, where I convinced them to pay me to go to eight different tailgates for the NFL and do videos (laughs) on the best bars to go to and where to tailgate. And I picked up um, which locations for different times. So in December, I was in San Diego and (laughs) I think like somewhere else warm. Um, So I don't have as much time anymore to pitch the things that I love, but I try to make time for them. But I think that's another thing that kind of relates to phones, too. Like When you have time and nothing to do, your mind wanders and you happen upon things that you notice or that you're aware of or that make you think of something, and that's where creativity stems from, we don't really ever get bored anymore. If we have to sit by ourselves and wait for someone, we pull out our phone and we just are flooded with content. Um, I don't have time, and I'm always flooded with content because I'm always trying to keep up, and that, I think kind of prevents me from being as creative as I used to be. So I have to come up with some ways to get back to that.
1: So I guess within that, how did you find the um story from the summer yeah the football player? If you haven't
0: seen it, the written part's called Runs in the Family and the E60 was called Identity. Um actually my good friend Skip was teammates with Dylan McCullough, who's the running backs coach for the Chiefs. And as soon as Dylan found that out about his family, I won't spoil it for everyone, he told Skip. Skip told him, you got to go to Sarah. ESPN would crush this. And um, we did. It was a great story. I was so worried about screwing it up, because it was so good on its own. Um, And now it's going to be a book, and we're working on a movie. So can't wait till I find time for those.
1: (laughs) The, um, and I mentioned this to her, it, Sherman Smith is a yeah, yeah. so Google, Google that name, read that story, and if you're a writer, Sarah does an amazing job of not tripping over herself writing, and I mean that in the best compliment, she just wrote it and let the story tell itself, and it's, I edit a lot of copy in Cronkite, and there's a lot of great content, but sometimes we get too caught up in the words and the similes and the metaphors, it's, it's an awesome story, so anyway, yes. Uh, Eliav Gavai, senior here. Um, so, of course, we we mentioned about depression and the tough times that can happen in this business, and sometimes
0: that can last weeks, months. And as you mentioned, with the crazy schedule all the time, it's hard to focus on yourself. So on a daily basis, what can you do to kind of get through those times? Well, like I said before, I'm so lucky that I'm a very naturally happy person. I have always been super grateful to the point of, like, at every cheesy quote about, like, life is such a beautiful blessing like do you ever watch american beauty and the guy like is watching the plastic bag fly around and he's like "Wow, <laughs> that's kind of like me the, the quote was like there's so much beauty in the world sometimes i can't take it all and i feel like i'm gonna burst that's been me my whole life like we're so lucky we get sunsets and we get ice cream um which is just a great way to be naturally um but i get down and i get stressed um I have three dogs that I'm obsessed with they have their own Instagram Fletch and Banks if you want (laughs) to Haji's a foster that's why his name isn't in the account but if he sticks around we'll change it um and they I they I snuggle them to death and they make me happy all the time um and then I'm not a good relaxer so when I'm not working I am super social like I, I, I should relax more but instead it's like I work all the time so now that I'm off, let's go to this concert, let's go to this play let's do something that isn't sports I do sports for fun too, in fact I'm coming for the rest of the week for spring training um, but I like to like just get out and be around people and be super social to like keep me from just work, 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 work um, yeah, just your standard dogs and parties <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello, Sarah. Hi. Hi. So uh, many different occasions, I I saw you speak to the Bureau earlier today. Uh, You mentioned your husband, and so uh, in my conversation, it's more of a personal topic. Uh, I am uh, on the verge of getting married in the next two years. Congrats. Thank you. Wait, did you say
0: in the next few years? It's it's. Are you engaged? Yeah, I am engaged. Okay. I thought you were just putting the cart before the horse. Sorry. When this
1: opportunity came up, it, it became an extended engagement. So, okay, got it. <laughs> um, my question for you is how are you able to manage everything that you have going on work-wise compared to your personal relationships back at home? Right. Um, because I know I'm not the best time management person, so I would Sounds love like to get my your insight. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, honestly, we've been kind of lucky in that when I met my husband, he was working at StubHub. And I was at um, the startup website, which I got laid off from because they couldn't afford to pay people anymore because they weren't doing very well. So I, start, I was like blogging for Chicago Now, part of Chicago Tribune, so I was making no money. And he was like an, uh, four years older and had a normal job. And so I was just kind of trying to find my way. And he traveled a little bit for work. Then I started to make my way and I started traveling for work and he switched jobs and never travels anymore. So it works out really well that we never were having the, to, with the dogs or anything else, worry about us always being gone. Um, so that helps a lot, that he kind of takes care of the home front when I'm gone and I don't have to worry about it. Um, and then we both have weird schedules. He's a realtor and then he runs a satirical sports website for fun. And so we don't have nine to fives. So if I'm busy from 3.30 to eight every day, he's fine with eating dinner at nine o'clock. We can go to lunch together if I if I have time off, Um, and we're both very independent, but we like to do the same things. So we'll go to we'll go to Blackhawks games or Cubs games together. We'll play rec league sports together. We do a ton of stuff together, but we're totally cool with both being at home in different rooms, watching different TV shows, doing different work. Um, And I think that helps a lot. We're not, and like I can be gone for two weeks, and it's not a big deal, you know. but it's a tough balance. Uh, I think he, uh, as of a couple years ago when I started to get more and more offers to do stuff outside of Chicago, I was worried about giving up on great opportunities and he was very steadfast in, I don't want to move. We have all of our friends and family, we have a great house, like, and there was not a lot of resentment from me because I understood and I didn't really want to move either. And so we haven't ever gotten to a point where it's been a super conflict, I think partly because I want to stay in Chicago, but we'll see. (laughs) Maybe I'll get the offer of a lifetime. And lately he's been like, hey, if you want to move, and it's a great opportunity, like, I'm open to it. We can talk about it. So, Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with the wedding. (laughs) So uh, Peyton
1: Gallagher, I'm a freshman here.
0: And we talked a lot about being you throughout the course of the um, panel.
1: And I think that's a very nuanced thing in 2019, especially when you're trying to get into the field of sports, which is inherently competitive. Right. So how would you go about keeping your head on straight?
0: Um, yeah, what's interesting is, like, I say BU, and in 2019, that means so many things. And sports is still pretty homogenous. So, like, you can tell people BU, but they're still walking into a space that doesn't necessarily fully embrace all different types of people. Um I certainly I try to remind myself what I felt like when I was like 23. It's a little harder now to remember, but I do try to remind myself how insecure I was and how much I wanted to fit in and how much I was trying to figure out who I needed to be like and what I needed to be like to make it. Um, But in the end, I think I have a very secure sense of self, and I I was always raised like with a very sincere set of principles that I never wanted to stray from and that kind of always kept me from straying too far from who I really am and um, Once I got into sports and decided to give it a shot and it, and being myself was working I just decided I'm just gonna stick with this I'm just gonna go with my gut and every time something comes up and I have to decide how to be or how to act I'm just gonna trust that my gut is telling me the right thing And it really hasn't led me astray. Now, that's not going to work for everybody. Some people's gut is not right. For some people, when you say be yourself and their self is like kind of annoying or not really likable, um, I don't know what to tell you then. But I do know that people are attracted to authenticity and transparency. And there are a lot of quirky, weird, unique, fascinating people Who are not at all what you would think is the right fit and people love them because they're so authentically themselves like Tim Kirkshin is such a quirky dude and he is so beloved and no one cares that he doesn't look like anyone who ever played professional sports or doesn't sound like everybody and isn't machismo he's just very true to himself and so I think nothing is less attractive than a lack of confidence or an affectation to something that you aren't. So as hard as it is, it's easier to just be yourself and then hope that the people that are hiring and are around you don't suck, <laughs> which you can't fix. Can't control <laughs> that part. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Erica. I'm a grad student. Hi. I'm curious, how have you responded, or how do you respond when a male colleague takes credit for an idea of yours, or your work, or what have you? Hasn't really happened as far as I know, although maybe they're doing it behind my back. Um, You know what? I haven't really had that specific problem, thankfully. Um, One thing I will say that I'm still grappling with is the idea that qualities that are appreciated in men are not always appreciated in women. And how do you deal with that? Do you change yourself to be more likable? Or do you power through with who you truly are and hope that people adjust? And I say that in part because, you know, in the radio side, I'm one of the only women. And so I'm constantly worried about if I am received the wrong way because people like to think that strong, confident women are bitchy or whatever. Do I need to be overly nice? And I had a very tiny conflict with someone in the radio, and when I brought it up to him and how it was a problem to me, I looked back at my email and I wrote, it's not a big deal, four times, and the email was like one paragraph. <laughs> it was like, it's not a big deal, but, you know, it's not a big deal, but, and I kept writing that because I was like, oh my gosh, you think I'm terrible for like the one time that I've ever showed any remote conflict. I just try so hard to be easy to work with because I'm worried about that. But then I'm like... By doing that, do I take away from my own power and agency? Mm -hmm. Because the men that are walking around like big swinging whatevers are giving off the impression that they're great and deserve to be fawned over. And am I being received differently and as less than because I'm not walking around like that? Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. I've been asking a lot of powerful women how they do it because I love badass women. Mm -hmm. Unapologetic, totally don't care whether you read it wrong, confident. I love them and I want to be that for other women, but a part of me is still so stuck in the BS, be likable and easygoing, and whatever. Um, So I think I don't have a conflict with men stealing my work, but I have a conflict with men stealing my personality and succeeding with it. (laughs) And then me not being able to do the same things and be the same way without it being disliked by some men. Thanks. Great I question. smiled at the end in case it came across.
1: <laughs> you pulled that off well. <laughs> We've hit the magic number It's 801. We have to I stop. talk way too much. Sorry. Um, real quick, what have you thought of Cronkite since you've been
0: here? Um, super jolly. Uh, that I didn't figure <laughs> out what I wanted to do with my life until I was 25 because um, I actually have been mentoring this girl in high school mm-hmm. since she was 11. She's about to go to Ole Miss for journalism. Wow. And she has a TV school at her high school, and so she's been getting reps and hosting shows and competing for, like, ever. And I'm like, I didn't even do my first stand-up till I was, like, 26. So you guys are getting crazy good reps. Take advantage of them. Also, I used to have to borrow a camera, giant video camera, mm-hmm learn how to edit my own stuff, burn it to a DVD, buy a DVD burner so I could make copies to snail mail them <laughs> to people to try to get them to hire me. And you have an iPhone and YouTube. So if you do not have a show, a podcast or whatever, why not? It doesn't matter if no one sees it. It doesn't matter if it sucks. All of those reps are gonna make you so much better. And there's no excuse not to have it when everything is at your fingertips um, if you have really offensive views just like keep it private so that yeah. they don't haunt you later um, <laughs> other than that it doesn't matter if you suck you'll get better you are awesome thank you sir you guys are awesome this was thank fun thank
1: you mm-hmm. You're